Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. Those who join us by live stream, welcome as we come this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. There is a possibility we may finish the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. If not, there's always next week, but uh, we are going to look at this interesting chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You heard it read earlier. Um, when you're trying to figure out what you're going to preach about on particular Sundays, it's, uh, this has kind of been a difficult chapter because uh, there are no exhortations except for a few and two verses are some there's no theology really there's no behavior to correct Uh, it's just um, Paul telling what he's going to do and what he's not going to do and what others are doing and what others are not doing and it just kind of goes like that and so you're just trying to say hey what are we going to say in this chapter of 1 Corinthians. As I told you last week, I do think some things sort of come out of this that you can glean from the life of Paul. You can learn from his way of leading a ministry. You can learn from some of the marks of a strong ministry, some of the marks of a healthy ministry that Paul manifests in the way he handles different situations. So I'm going to try to take some of those and and take you through uh, chapter 16, 5 through 24 this morning. Uh, That'll be our goal. We may not get all the way there, but uh, I want you to see some marks of a healthy church, marks of a healthy ministry, marks of what I would desire for our church to be like, what I would like the leaders of our church to be like as well, because I think these are, uh, though Paul does not state them, you see them modeled for us and certainly worth imitating. Um, there's just no bad behavior really in this chapter. It's just different reading it because so many chapters of First Corinthians have been correcting something that's wrong with the Corinthians and this one is not like that at all. Last time I, I introduced this chapter, I told you the first four verses there talk about uh, one mark of healthy ministry is handling finance as well. Uh, a church needs to, of all places, have integrity in the way they handle money. And that's what Paul talks about in those opening verses. He, t- he talks about this offering that he is collecting from several Gentile churches for the poor in Jerusalem. He's, he's going to collect this offering from Gentiles and, and Jews who basically don't get along with each other. Um, Pre-Christ, they don't get along with each other. Uh, there was a lot of problems in the early church between Jew and Gentile. Um, and here you have Paul collecting an offering from all those Gentile churches, those non-Jewish churches that he's establishing on his missionary journey. He's going back to them and collecting an offering because of the poverty in Jerusalem for those Jews. Poverty brought on by the famine. Poverty brought on by the fact that so many Jews would come to Jerusalem, get saved, and stay there because there was no church back home to go to, and they'd be taken care of by the believers in Jerusalem. And so Paul just shows us in those opening verses the accountability that needs to be there. Uh, You don't want in ministry there to be embezzlement. You don't want there in ministry to be the mishandling of funds. You want there to be honesty and integrity and somebody could come and look at the books and say, hey, this is above board, above reproach. And that's one thing I think you learn here about a mark of a healthy ministry, a healthy church. We saw that last time in those four verses. And now we're going to see some other things that Paul says as we go through this um, in uh, chapter 16. We're going to see in the next few verses, we're going to see Paul's flexibility. I know that uh, sounds 
It sounds interesting, but I've been, most of us are not flexible, right? Most of us are not flexible. I got my plans, and boy, they better come about, or, you know, I just kind of lose it. But um, the point is, uh, you're going to see some flexibility here on the part of Paul on what he's going to be doing. We see, uh, we're going to see how he embraces opposition, because ministry, you're going to have opposition. You're going to be opposed. Uh, fourth, you're going to see how he encourages others on the ministry team. Paul was not a one-man show. Paul was not just Paul. It was others who worked with him and ministered with him. Uh, you see in this chapter the spiritual maturity. There is an exhortation there in uh, 12 and 13, uh, some exhortation to spiritual maturity. You're going to see in uh, the end leadership and submission, noble leadership uh, and, and willing submission on the part of those who are under those leaders. And then this chapter kind of closes out with some greetings. Uh, Paul is going to take the pen, take the pen and then write in his own words. Up until now, Sosthenes has been doing the writing, but now Paul says, I'm going to write this in my own handwriting to authenticate the whole letter. That's kind of how this chapter is going to go. And so, let's talk about this issue of Paul's flexibility. You see it in verses 5, 6, and I believe all the way down to verse 8, excuse me, verse 7, 5, 6, and 7. But I will come to you after I go through uh, Macedonia. For I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or look at this, or perhaps, or uh, even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. In verse 7, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing. I hope to remain, I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Uh, Paul's flexibility. Paul was a Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees. They were not known for flex, being flexible about anything. And here's Paul. Well, if I can be there, I will. If I can't, I won't. If God permits, things like that. You hear him talking like that. His, he had plans, but he didn't put his plans in such a, a concrete uh, way, down in such a concrete way that he wasn't willing to change those plans if necessary. It's kind of like in verse 5, Paul is pouring over a map to see where I'm going to go next. Uh, the strategy, what's going to be my strategy? I, he's still kind of making up his mind. Verse 6, perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter. I mean, looking at this map, you think of a, a general uh, in, in his tent on the battlefield trying to figure out where to go next and what to do next. Uh, maybe I'll go here, maybe I'll go there. Um, maybe I'll go to Spain, maybe I'll go to Rome, maybe I'll go to Jerusalem. Uh, you see, Paul, Paul is everywhere. Um, when, when Corinth receives this letter, 1 Corinthians, when they get this letter, things really fall apart in Corinth. See, Paul, Paul had told them he would come see them. I'm going to try to come see you. But right after he writes this to them, the church falls apart. There's a huge split. I told you about this last week. There was like a huge split that took place in the church. He has to send Titus there to kind of smooth things over. They were mad at Paul. Paul couldn't really go there. He tried to go there, but decided not to go there until, let me send Titus so they will like one another and like me. And so he sends Titus there and... Um, so, I mean, things just fall apart after Paul says, I might come to see you. Um, and they kind of held that against Paul. If you want to just flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15, they, they accuse him, they hold this against him. They, they almost make it sound like he intentionally told them he was going to do something and he didn't do it. 
Look in verse 15. In this confidence, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15, in this confidence I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this. Do you see that? They were accusing him of intentionally not falling through on his promise to come see them. They were being inflexible. They were not understanding circumstances dictated other things for Paul to do. Nobody, nobody wants to vacillate, but circumstances sometimes do change your plans. Sometimes circumstances do dictate that you must do something else. Nobody wants to not keep a promise, but there's got to be flexibility and not to get paralyzed when plans have to change. And I think that's a mark of good leadership by the, upon the part of the Apostle Paul, regardless of what others were thinking. They just did not understand that he could not keep the original plan, and they didn't even understand all the drama that was going on. I mean, Corinth had its problems, but Ephesus had its problems, and all these places had lots of problems, and Paul was somewhat depressed at this time as well. So they were the ones being inflexible. They were the ones that were willfully misinterpreting him and blaming him because he wasn't omniscient and all knowing about what was going on. Verse seven, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time. Notice if the Lord permits. You've heard the verse in James. Don't say you're going to go here or go there. Say, if the Lord wills, I will go there. Same idea here. If the Lord permits, I will go there. Recognizing that God is providentially in charge of everything. I can make my plans, Proverbs 16 says, but it's the Lord that directs my steps. 16.9 of Proverbs. Plans are a good thing, but they always got to be, they can't be in concrete all the time. Now, I don't want to be flexible on doctrine. I don't want to be flexible on the absolute truths of Scripture. You're not flexible on that, but you're always flexible when it comes to plans because circumstances can change. God uses plans. He frustrates plans. He, he changes, forces you to change plans at times. And that just teaches me to trust him. That just teaches me to fall back on his sovereign, his providence, that he's working and he doesn't make any mistakes and I don't need to hold on to my plans and my dreams in such a way that when they don't come to fruition, I just fall apart and I'm paralyzed. Paul wasn't paralyzed. I just do something else, go somewhere else. The second mark that I would say is an important one that Paul manifests in this section is how he deals with opposition, and that is he embraces the opposition. Notice in verses 8 and 9, I will remain at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Wow. Wide door of opportunity open to me. Really wide, emphasis, really wide door is open, but there are adversaries. It's kind of like they go together. It's kind of like fire and smoke. When you got one, you got the other. 
You have a wide door of effective ministry opportunity, but you're also going to face opposition. If you don't face opposition, it's very likely that you're going with the world and not against the world. You and I as Christians are going to face opposition. You trying to share the gospel with that friend or that neighbor, there's going to be opposition. You trying to uh, take a stand for truth and to live in a certain way, you're going to face opposition. That's the world. We wrestle with flesh and we wrestle with the world. Those things. Paul faced opposition at every level. I wrestle with myself. All of us wrestle with ourselves. That's a battle. We all have that battle, but then we also have the external battles, those external battles. Notice in Acts chapter 19, this is an interesting opposition that Paul is referring to in Ephesus specifically. Acts chapter 19, if you're back in uh, Corinthians, flip over to Acts 19, keep going back another book or two. Acts 19, this happened in Ephesus. This is where Paul was, and this is... The opposition, this opposition had a name. His name was Demetrius. He was a silversmith. Demetrius the silversmith. He would make silver shrines to Artemis, the god that they worshipped in Ephesus. Verse 24 of Acts chapter 19. And he became quite a craftsman making these little idol shrines of Artemis and selling them, we see in verse 24. And he got together all the other, verse 25 says, all the other workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. This is opposition building right here. Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They got filled with confusion in the city. A riot breaks out. Paul eventually has to leave Ephesus. But the point is... This is the opposition. Paul says it goes with the territory. It's a normal day at the office for me. Ministry. He embraces opposition. It's a great opportunity for ministry, he says, but the opposition will be there. There are many adversaries. Many adversaries. And he knew all about opposition because Jesus warned us about opposition. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. We should not be shocked, folks. The world does not like us. We should not be shocked. If the world likes us, there might be something wrong with our testimony. Maybe something wrong with how we're talking and how we sound. Because the world does not like our, does not like our Savior and they will not like us. They can't get to our Savior, they can get to us. And they will seek to do that. They hated me before you. They hated me before they hated you. So Paul understood that if you're going to have meaningful ministry, you're going to have opposition. Um, And it doesn't mean that you didn't do the right ministry just because you got into the ministry and there's opposition. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be there. It just means that condemnation by the world is commendation by God. The world may condemn what I'm doing, but I'm commended by God. We have to understand that 
We have to love God more than mother, father, brother, sister, all of us. That we have to understand that we'll face persecution because of our commitment and love for Christ. We have to understand that that goes with the territory. If you're going to live godly, Paul told Timothy, you're going to face persecution. Embrace the persecution. Paul embraced the persecution. He depends, it makes us depend on Christ and the Holy Spirit. And Paul just walked through that door, that wide open door, no matter what the opposition was. Thirdly, you see in verses 10 through 12, you see members of Paul's team. Um, it's interesting, you see two people mentioned in that, those verses. You see Timothy in verse 10 and Apollos in verse 12. Uh, Timothy, you may recall, Paul had met when he had, on his second missionary journey when he had come to the city of Derby. He, he noticed Timothy and he recognized Timothy's gifts and his abilities and he called Timothy to come with him and, and, and work with him and uh, go on the missionary journeys with him. He becomes a protege of the Apostle Paul. You see Timothy's name mentioned many times throughout the uh, epistles of Paul. But he's always developing these young men, Silas and Timothy and others. He's developing developing them. Titus, uh, you could definitely add to the list as well. You see his name, like I said, several times. Paul lays hands on, on Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, and he became like a fixture on Paul's team. And you read between the lines in here, you, you see that Timothy is not exactly uh, aggressive or, or he has a more retiring type personality. You, get, you realize that he's not a Paul. He's not quite like Paul. He's a little more timid, we are told, than another place. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, except it might not be a good fit for the Corinthians. I mean, that may not be the kind of person that can work well with the Corinthians. Paul is saying when he comes to you, when Timothy comes to you, verse 10 says, see that he is with, with you without cause to be afraid. Don't eat him, basically. Don't eat the guy. You know, they certainly had the potential to do that. They tried to eat Paul over and over. And Paul is saying, do not treat him like that. He represents me to you. And so he had concern for Timothy. He didn't want him to get beat up and, and quit and, and be discouraged. Let no one despise him, verse 11 says. Send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I, I expect him with the brethren. And so he has this concern for this younger um, protege in ministry. They not get discouraged. Paul was cared about those who were on his team and he wanted to protect them from being abused by just insensitive people. And, and that's a good thing for a church. I just want to tell you, that's a good thing for a church to, to allow young pastors to develop. A lot of times, guys will come into a church and right out of seminary or, or right out, and they, they're idealistic and they come in and, they're, and they, it's not just other people, but within themselves are struggling and then other people have expectations for them they can't live up to and they're discouraged and they get, um, and they just want to quit. And uh, I'm glad when I came here 30-something years ago that there was uh, a 
there were people in our church, in this church who really loved me and who would even tell me I did a good job when I know I did a terrible job. When I stood up here and made a sermon that didn't even make any sense, and they would still say, good job. <laughs> you know, things like that. Because they didn't want me to quit, I guess. I don't know, but the point is. And I appreciated having an older pastor who would take the brunt of a lot of those things from, for me and and uh, not that anybody was being mean or cruel, it was just like, it was just mostly self-imposed type things, but just, just to have, have someone who was patient and gave you room to fail, gave you space to make mistakes and, and fail, that was uh, such a blessing to me, give me room to grow. I want to provide that for young men in our church who desire to go into ministry and who are in ministry. And that's what our church needs to be, that kind of caring environment, supportive environment so that other pastors can develop. And we're blessed to have other men that can stand up in this pulpit besides me, and we just need to support them and encourage them when they do that. Apollos, now he's a different kind of guy. He's, he's been around a lot longer, and he's uh, um, more seasoned, and Paul doesn't, can't really get him to do what he wants him to do. Notice in verse 12, I encourage him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to do that, but he will come when he has the opportunity. So he's kind of, you know, Paul's not, Paul could have pulled out the apostle card and said, now you get down there. He could have done that, I guess, but the point is he sees, he sees that Apollos has been doing this a long time, and he's got the ability to you know, make some decisions about what he needs to do. And so Paul doesn't get resentful about that. He encourages, he says he'll come when he can. He'll come when he can. There's, 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 um, there may have been a disagreement possibly, but let me, let me just say this to you. Let me just say this to you. There are going to be times when, um, when, when elders disagree. There's going to be times when leaders in churches disagree on things, um, but they can be cordial. Um, I've heard some pastors say I would never have some other staff person with me. I've heard, I just have to do it by myself because I just can't, I can't work with anybody else. I think that's a terrible thing to say. I think it's a terrible thing to say. To be a pastor and think you don't have others ministering with you or co-laboring with you. And the reason is, is because you can't get along with anybody. I think that's terrible to say that. Sure, some of the most challenging um, things going on within the body of Christ are missionaries on the mission field getting along with other missionaries. And how many churches do you know where the staff do not get along with each other? That happens all the time. They get a different agenda. I'm going to go my way, you're going to go your way. You, you see that in churches. And that is no team spirit. That is people working against each other that does not please God, does not bring glory to God. And uh, I thank God we don't see that here at all. I mean, we disagree. Oh my goodness, yes, we have, we have opinions about things, and, um, but we're cordial and appreciative toward one another, and we will always continue to do that and to always preserve the unity uh, of this body and the spirit that has brought us together. Fourthly, he says uh, another mark of a strong ministry in a church is maturity. You see this in verses 13 and 14. And this are, these, are, these are some exhortations. He kind of ends the book with some, of these, some exhortations. And here are, here are some uh, that he brings out. And these are really important. And I think this is a good way to end the book, actually. Uh, 
be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. It's interesting that he brings this out at the very end of this letter and, and says here, uh, you know, you need to do these things. You need to be on the alert and stand firm. In, and I believe he's talking about doctrine there. I believe those two go together. I believe he's talking about um, they're, they're standing for the faith. See the article, the faith? We're talking about not your belief system. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the body of Christianity, the body of truth that makes Christianity Christianity. He's saying, be on the alert, stand firm. Be on the alert to those who will come and try to infiltrate and corrupt the truth. Those who will come in, those false teachers who want to come in and bring new ideas and things that are foreign to the scriptures and foreign to the teaching of the Bible. Be on the alert. I think it's talking theology here because it's so close to 1 Corinthians 15 where you've just gotten through talking about the resurrection. And you see the word alert used in Acts chapter 19. Be on the alert, you Ephesian elders, for many are going to come up within you and lead people astray. So I think we're talking here about be on the alert and stand firm in the faith, in the truth. Don't waver on it. Don't waffle on it. Don't give in to the opinions of man. Don't give in to the, the mood and the, the, the opinion polls. Don't give in to all of that. Don't give in to mysticism. Don't try to live by your feelings and, and live by um, impulses and, and your mind. It says, no, hold to the principle, the truth. Don't stray from that. Listen, every Christian needs to get anchored in the truth and not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. We just talked about that in our equipping class this morning on Mormonism. They use the same terms we used and how many Christians get sucked into thinking that that's a Christian denomination and it's not. It's not. It's outside the framework of the Bible and it's, it falls into the sea of heresy just like so many cults do. Different Jesus, different gospel, different understanding of who God is, all of those things. And you, you and I are to hold fast to these things and we're to cling to them, stand firm, plant your feet, root your, root, let your roots go deep in the word of God. Folks, that's what you gotta do. That's, you know, I'm gonna talk about this next week and if, if I finish 1 Corinthians today, but I'm gonna talk about this a little bit next week. But that's what we need is the authority of the Bible in our lives and to know what it says. We gotta be good Bereans, good Bereans who check it to check to see if these things are true or not. Because we live in a world of lies, lots of lies. Lots and lots of lies. Everything always starts with doctrine. Any, any New Testament epistle you come to, it's always doctrine, sound faith, sound words, hold on to the truth. That's always the priority. You saw this in, early in the book of 1 Corinthians. They were enticed by Greek philosophy. 
infiltrating the church. Oh, Paul, your message is so simple. It's, it's not high. Uh, it's not, there's not a high-mindedness. It's just too simple to say Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sin. Let's change that up a little bit. Let's flower it up a little bit. Let's make it more appealing to the mind. Let's not talk about offensive things like dying on a cross, sin, and hell, and judgment. Let's don't talk about those offensive things. Let's talk like the philosophers of our age. That was 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 3 if you recall they were just enticed away from the truth they need to be wake up and be alert to all that false doctrine that's infiltrating the church all mature churches do this you show me a church that's immature I'll show you I'll tell you why it's because they left the truth they abandoned the truth of God's word they became man-centered, not God-centered. They had lost their high view of God and a high view of God's word, and they drifted away. And they started just appealing to, the, to everybody doing what is right in their own eyes and to the whims of man and the opinions of man and the traditions of man and not to the word of God. Stand firm, he says. Wake up and be alert to all this false doctrine around you. Don't let your guard down. Don't drift into liberalism. That's what churches are doing today, just drifting into liberalism. Machen says that's not Christianity at all anymore. Pretty soon what used to be a church is no longer a church. It may be a church in name only, but it's not really a church because it's not a pillar of truth. Thirdly, you see another command in here. It's courage and self-discipline. I think these two go together as well, actually. Act like men, be strong. There's many, many people today look at the church and say one of the biggest problems in the church is the feminization of the church. Paul would not have been a fan of that at all. He says we need manly courage in the church. Act like men, be manly, be courageous. There's another interpretation of how that comes out, but it really literally means act like men. Now, it's hard for half of this congregation to do that. I understand that. But in reality, it's hard for all of us to do that. Manly courage means uh, maturity and strength, and every church needs this, and the Corinthians needed this. Remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when the guy was uh, committing incest, living with his father's wife, or I think that was the scene? The point is, who's going to have the courage to go up to that guy and tell him you're in sin, you are wrong? In our culture, you don't do that. You don't tell anybody they're wrong about anything. And that was their problem. They tolerated that. Paul says, no, you need courage. You need courage to look that guy in the eye and tell him you cannot associate with us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. Who's going to go to those people that want to run to the temple every weekend and, and participate in the drunken parties we saw earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians and who want to participate in the, with the prostitutes and all of those things? Who's going to confront those people and say to them, hey, that is not right. Christians don't live like that. You are making a claim that your life does not back up. Who is going to have the courage to say that? No one says that to anybody today. We've lost courage. It's, it's a, how do, we don't want to make them feel bad. We don't want to, we want to soften the message so much so. And, and this is what I mean by the feminizing of the church. Softening of everything. Who's going who, to speak to that guy that stood up in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12 and gave a prophecy, the Spirit is speaking through me and this is what the Spirit is saying, Jesus be accursed. 
Everybody just stands there and, what? But nobody says anything. Who's going to confront that guy and say, I don't know what spirit is speaking through you, but that's not the spirit of God. That takes courage. That takes courage. And somebody has to stand up and say, that is wrong and you must stop. It takes courage. Not just the elders, but all the men in the church. We need men in this church who stand for truth and who have courage to say, this is right and this is wrong. And no matter what kind of temper tantrum people pitch over it, it doesn't matter if it's truth. You're not giving your opinion. You're giving God's word. You know, when you, we were practicing, we were practicing church discipline, the question always comes up, well, could there be a lawsuit here? You know what? People need to do what they're going to, are going to do what they're going to do, but we must do what Christ tells us to do. It doesn't matter. We just obey him and let him handle whatever consequences come from our obedience. But it takes courage to do that. Lots of courage, believe me. And it takes courage. And, and we need a congregation that thinks like that. Believe me, it's much easier for your elders to take stands like that when we know that we are standing on the back of a congregation that thinks that way as well. A recent incident that we had in our church, and the members are aware of this, and we had to take a stand against some, a situation, and many of you wrote and said, that's right. You did the right thing. That told us we're standing on the back of people who are in agreement for a, and supportive in a hard situation. Those are things we're talking about here. Be strong. Verse 14 balances it all out. Let all that you do be done in love. Love is everywhere in, in the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, you remember that. But that is sort of, you know what happens if you just get all concerned about the truth, get all concerned about courage, you can get harsh. You can get harsh. You don't want to be harsh. You want to let love balance this all out. You want to let balance be balanced with love. Sometimes you speak the truth, people accuse you of being unloving. I'm accused of that all the time, I'm sure. And, you know, people say that. I, I, that's not true. It'd be unloving not to speak the truth. But it doesn't, doesn't mean you can't say what is right in a way that is truthful and loving at the same time. Verses 15 through 18. Well, you got it. You see that. Do you see what I'm talking about here? It's strong exhortations to this church. They need to hear those things. They've, he's gone through a whole letter identifying issues and they need courage and they need to hold to the truth and they need uh, to be disciplined and um, they need love. And then verses 15 through 18 Look at the leadership and submission going on in this. This is, shouldn't take me very long to get through this little section here. But I, now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. Achaia is where Corinth is located. One of the first converts in Corinth was the household of Stephanus. And they devoted themselves for the ministry to the saints. 
and to ministry. And he says, you be in subjection to them, to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. You be in subjection to them. They're, obviously, we're talking about people who are leading in the church. You be in subjection. Listen, you have leadership and you have, and you have those who submit to that leadership. That is necessary for a church. That is a mark of a healthy church. That is a mark of a strong church. We have noble leaders who are devoted to Christ and people who follow those leaders. That's, that is a mark of true, of a strong ministry. Paul says in verse 17, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Notice, therefore acknowledge such men. Recognize their leadership. Recognize their leadership. You see, some churches are a battleground between leaders and the people in the, in the pew. They're a battleground. Some pastors are afraid for Sunday to come and have to stand in front of their congregation. Because it's a battleground. I, I, I agree. You have to have a noble leader. That may, a noble leader makes it easier for people to follow. And that should certainly be the situation. A leader needs to be noble. If he's not, people don't want to follow him. He may want to ask himself, is there something about me and my leadership? That's always an important question for a leader to ask. But on the same point, Paul says, you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 13, obey your leaders and submit to them. They keep watch over your soul. Don't let them do this um, with, with grief, but with joy. So Corinthians, don't eat your pastors. Quit eating your pastors. That's what you're doing. You're trying to eat me. You're trying to eat everybody I send to you. Quit doing that. You need to submit and follow and encourage. And, and those leaders need to be like these men that we've just listed here, devoted to the Lord. In verses 16, and then Paul's closing greetings. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with a church that is in their house. That was, they originally, that couple, Aquila and Priscilla, also called Priscilla, were, once had a house church in Corinth, we're told, and other places. Asia is the Roman province uh, from where Paul is. Ephesus was was located there. And they had a church in their home. That's where the church met. They greet you. This is a greeting. This is a common way to end the letter, a greeting. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That was the cultural familiar greeting men and women would embrace the holy kiss on each cheek or whatever men men and women women whatever the greeting is in my own hand paul this is interesting to me paul takes it i said earlier to you earlier he takes the pen from sosthenes if that name is found in verse one of chapter one of first corinthians he's the uh the stenographer that wrote did the writing for Paul, maybe because of an eye disease or whatever, but maybe with the exception of Galatians, most all of Paul's epistles were written by a stenographer. And Paul says, I've taken the pen. I want to authenticate this letter. I don't want to be a Second Thessalonians issue where they thought they got a letter from somebody saying it was from me and it was not from me. I want you to know this is from me. This is from me, Paul. And that's why I'm signing it in my name, in my own hand, Paul. 
If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. What a thing to say to the Corinthians. What a thing to say to them. We, I love the song Jason had to sing earlier about loving God. L- listen, we love because he first loved us, and sometimes maybe we don't love him because he never first loved us. We've not experienced that love from him. Listen, that's a true way for assurance of salvation right there, my friends. Ask yourself, do I love Christ? Do I love Christ? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And those who keep his commandments are those who love him, John 14 says. If you say you love somebody, it is your desire to please them. If you say you love Christ and have no desire to please him, then you may not know him. And this is an important thing to say to the Corinthians as you come to the end of this letter because, quite frankly, many of them were acting like non-believers. And he wants to wake them up to the reality that many of them in their behavior that they've demonstrated as we've gone through this letter and the sins we have seen in this church, that many of them were not truly Lovers of Jesus. And that's a tr- listen, that's a test. That the test is always love of Christ. That is always the test. I don't care if you, I prayed a prayer, got baptized, go to church, all those things you want to say. The real issue is do you love Christ? Do you love him? And is that shown because you, by the way, in your life, wanting to please him? I, if I tell Anne I love her and I don't want to please her, then she has every reason to believe I don't love her. Anne's my wife, by the way. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? It's because it, goes with the, it goes with the Corinthians incredibly. You will be damned, he says. That's what anathema, a curse, means. It's the strongest Greek word for damnation. That will happen to you if you don't love Christ. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You don't practice righteousness, you don't love other believers, you will you manifest the fact that you don't love Christ. Children of the devil don't, practice righteousness and children of the devil do not love others but those who love Christ desire to practice righteousness they don't do it perfectly golly we fail all the time that's not the point the point is that is the direction of our lives and we desire to be pleasing to him Paul still called the Corinthians his brothers in Christ even though their behavior at times is bad, but he did want to warn them, listen, if you don't love Jesus, you may not be a follower of Jesus. He writes that at the end. And he adds this, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Boy, that's my prayer. Come Lord Jesus. It can also mean the Lord has come. And the way it's written here, it could be either one, really. The Lord has come or come, Lord Jesus. We're glad he's come and we want him to come back. It's kind of how Paul wants to emphasize it, I believe. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. That's the whole Christian life. I'm going to start First Peter in a couple of weeks. And you want to talk about a book that talks about the grace? Walking in grace and living in grace. You want to talk about a man who understood the grace of God? You're talking about a man like Peter who messed up so bad so many times. 
And if anybody understood grace, it was Peter, right? That's what we were looking at in a couple weeks. That's how the Christian life is lived. We're immersed in God's grace. Every day I just live in his grace. And then he closes with these words. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Be with you in Christ Jesus. Paul loved them in spite of everything, in spite of the fact they wanted to eat him alive and treat him so terribly. Paul says, I love you. I love you. And Christ be with you. Amen. This is true. This is true. Listen, there's so many lessons in 1 Corinthians and because this has been a book that's been filled with all kinds of subjects, a lot of hard subjects. It was hard a lot of weeks to come up and preach some of these subjects because they're just that kind of content. And, and I, but I pray this message will continue. The message of this book will continue uh, to work in us. There are sins in the church. There are sins in our church. But we want to be a strong church marked by being alert and standing firm in the truth and having courage and loving each other. And that's how Paul finishes this thing off. I think he did a great job finishing it off with this. And just warning us, warning us all, you can sit here in this church and not be a Christian. It's easy to do. You can go to church and not be a Christian. Ask yourself, do I love Jesus? Do I love him? Do I love him and is that shown because I'm willing to obey him? If it's not, you might need to repent and turn to Christ and that would be my prayer for you. That would be Paul's prayer. That would be the prayer of all the saints of all the ages. That she would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all by grace. Father God, thank you. Thank you for our many months in this book and the things we've learned and the things we've talked about and the things we've studied. We praise you, God, for these lessons. It could be us. This, this book could have been written about us in many ways. We can identify with many of the sins and failures and shortcomings and all the things, God. We are all of redeemed flesh and we fail many times. But God, we pray that we won't just walk away and be hearers only, but doers of your word. That we will love you with our whole hearts. We'll be a healthy church. We'll strive for tr to be a healthy body of believers. Not just to be a typical American church, satisfied and no sense of conviction about anything, but we will stand firm on the truths of your word and not, not allow ourselves to be not allow ourselves to be infiltrated by false teaching or false ideas, but stand firm in the truth. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.